My name is Angie Brown and you are listening to the Being Luminary podcast, the podcast where I get into all things diversity, equity and inclusion with luminary guests, a sprinkling of coaching, advice, guidance and the inspiration for you to do things differently in your organisation. If you want to create a luminary place to work, a luminary experience for your clients, your teams, your communities, If you are committed to overleaping compliance and heading straight for luminary approaches to DEI, you are in the right place. You are listening to the Being Luminary podcast, episode number 41. Today, my guest is Richard O'Neill. Welcome, Richard. I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself to people who are listening in. Uh, I'm Richard O'Neill. I'm a storyteller, an author, a, a trainer. And probably one of the last people to have been brought up in a fully nomadic Romani family in in England. Thank you, Richard. And uh, you're based where? Where in the world are you? Well, I, I grew up and travelled all over the northeast and and into Yorkshire and Cumbria, but currently I'm I'm in Lancashire. Okay, great. Um, so thank you for joining me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and. I've read a bit about you and so I'm interested to to see how the bits I've read about you <laughs> kind of fit into some of the narratives we might get into into the ways that you describe yourself. I'm a former English teacher so I'm interested in you as a storyteller as much as interested in how you author your story. So uh so so let's see where we go. I set out to people who are joining me on the podcast that I'm interested in in your origins and your origin story and um and how your origin story really exemplifies or talks to or touches on issues that might pertain to diversity or equity and or inclusion. I wonder if if we could start there. Yeah, I mean, for the first five years of my life, I grew up in a, a Romani family and a lot of the older people spoke mostly Romani, the Romani language. And of course, the younger people spoke English as well, but we, we spoke both. and. So it was very, I guess, traditional in in that sense. And I think one of the things about when you grow up in whatever community, and ours was not necessarily a closed community, but we spent a lot of time together in in the group. But going to school at five years old for the first time, and and in those days, you didn't have nursery, and, and probably if they had, I probably wouldn't have gone anyway. But you just turned up at school on your allotted day. That was the day for you to go. And then you went in there and, and it was a it was a shock for a lot of children who'd been at home generally in those days with their mothers from all communities. But from somebody from a, a very different community going into that, what we would call the the settled community, it was not only a shock in terms of spending a lot of time away from my family, but actually being into a completely different um atmosphere it was the first school i went to um was very nice the the teachers were very kind and everything but they had no understanding of my culture they um, and i had no understanding of theirs and and the difference being that we were and it's really interesting because now of course in school we talk about children being able to play outside more and more outdoor learning and that's what we did so when i work with schools now and they say you know like what do you know about outdoor learning so pretty much everything that's how I grew up um you know forest school they call it now was just work for us you know my family were were woodcarvers as well as other things so there was there was a there was a system 
in school, very linear. And, and it was very different to my growing up because growing up in a Romani family, as a nomadic family, life is very circular. Everything is very circular. Whereas when I went to school, uh, when I came into contact with the settled world, if you will, everything was very linear. It ran to a timetable. So even if it was raining, um, you know, we, we carried on with our work. But if it was raining in school at, at your allotted playtime, then they would stop the playtime and never give it back to you. So a half an hour later when the sun came out, you know, that had gone. Whereas with us, we might have said, well, look, it is raining. It's raining too hard to work. Let's rest uh, for an hour while it rains. But as soon as the sun comes out, we go back. It wasn't a case of, well, our learning slot has gone. Um, so it was, yeah, it was very, very difficult um, trying to understand. And, and, and I think you, when you come from a community and you go into another one, as a child, I think growing up, and I think this is, this, this is for a lot of children, when you grow up in a very different environment, you don't know you're different until other people tell you you're different or they show you you're different. So, you know, you, you're not different when you're in your family or in your community. You're just a member of that community. But it usually takes somebody else to show you, to tell you that you're different. And different generally, I think, you know, in my experience of, in the UK, different is generally seen as negative rather than positive. So, you know, in, in business very often and in the creative industries, generally different is good. And we're always looking for something different. We need something different. But as a child, if you're just different for whatever reason that is, generally means that you're the, the square peg. You know, you're going to be trouble. You're going to be difficult. You're going to be hard to work with because you're not like all the other little round pegs that will fit in the system we've got. Um, so I think I think I think that's that's difficult for a lot of children. So do you remember starting school and having that difference shown to you by teachers or by other children? Kind of where, where did you? Because I really like the point that others have to show it to you. Yeah, one of one of the biggest things that and I actually I actually have written a book about it. it. It's not published yet, but it but it will be hopefully in the future. And the the, the book is called uh, My Friend Lives in a Spaceship, and the teachers had no experience, obviously, of anybody living in a caravan, and that's where I, I grew up. But in, instead of saying, you know, let's draw your your home, we were told to draw our house. And everybody drew their house because everybody else lived in a house, but I lived in a caravan, so I, I, I drew a caravan. And, and, and this boy next to me, because um, it was sort of like, you know, the, the moon landings and the space race and stuff were, were going on at the time. And... Um, I must have had my picture slightly skewed and he looked at it and he was very excited, you know, his hands going up and he's saying to the teacher, miss, 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 uh, Richard O'Neill lives in a spaceship. And this caravan turned upside down, you know, turned upwards, must have looked a bit like a spaceship. So, yeah, the, and, and I've always made that link between, you know, people say about being excluded. And I think lots of people get excluded for all sorts of reasons. But I think when it's taken to a higher level, you get alienated. You know, and, and, and very often you'll you'll see this in popular culture. And I still hear it. People say it now, you know, you'll see it in TV programs where there is a, a Romani group of people, whatever drama or whatever. And, and the police will turn up or someone will turn up and say, who's the leader here? You know, and it's almost like those films 
from the 1950s, you know, take me to your leader. These are Martians. These are aliens. So I think that there, there's exclusion and then there's alienation. And I strongly dislike exclusion. I think if you've been excluded for no fault of your own, children don't do stuff to get excluded. You know, we talk about older children getting excluded from school, generally because they've done something. But for little children, just because they come from a different background or a different culture or a different race or ethnicity, they're immediately excluded and they feel it. In my family, I grew up listening to stories and I was very, very, I was fascinated by adults and fascinated by people. And I've always been a, a keen listener. And children can pick things up from, from adults just when you're not expecting it. You know, I as I got a little bit older, I heard teachers talking about me while I was there. You know, and they, they didn't think I could hear, but I could. What kinds of things would they be talking about? Well, you know, just just sort of othering you, really, in the, in the, in the case of, you know, this one. Let's, let's try him in this class. His mum says... He's on to book whatever. Probably isn't. Let's try him in your class. If he's no good, send him back down. You know, this kind of, you know, I couldn't possibly be ahead of the reading scheme. Um, even though my mum had said she was buying me the books. Uh, we had this reading scheme and uh, my mum was buying me the books. I was a voracious reader. You know, I was obsessed with reading and still am. But this teacher couldn't take my mum's word. You know, my mum must have got it mixed up. You know, she must have been making it up. And as a result, I actually did stay in that class, eight and a half, I think, for two years, near enough, in the same class, doing the same work, because I was ahead of the other kids. But they couldn't think, well, we can't put him up into the next class because, gosh, where will that lead to? He'll, oh, you know, it's whoosh. Um, so... Yeah, I think I, th I think you 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 very early on as a child get to understand from other people that you are different, and this and this is not just about ethnicity or race. It could be about you know what we know about neurodiversity now, children who are on the autistic spectrum or something. And you know we're just not flexible enough. Mm. It's really interesting that reading scheme story. I had a similar. Uh, we had a reading scheme, and I think I must have been six or seven and and I went and I was a voracious reader and went in and said oh I've done them all and the teacher was I mean actually furious that I was lying I got given a detention I got told that and and it, it was the most bizarre I still look back on it and think what a bizarre response to somebody saying that they've done so it was a very very peculiar but I think going back to your point about 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 the linear nature of schools and how people become calcified in that linearity. You can't possibly have read that. It must be a mistake. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of people, you know, the, the, all of these institutions, people end up becoming institutionalised. You know, you're doing the same thing in the same system for 20 years, and you'll hear people even today say, well, um, I don't agree with this, and I, I'm not happy with that, and I don't, but what can I do? It's almost as if, you know, well, imagine if you're a, you're an adult and you feel you can't change the system that you're in and you're an adult. So you could technically just walk out. Nobody is going to restrain you. But as a child, you feel powerless. And I sat in many a uh, classroom at all different ages and felt powerless. I never felt that when I was at home. 
I never, no matter how difficult things got for us, because you you understand when you're a child that there are things going on in your family, there are issues. Um, but I never felt powerless. But I did feel powerless, and and that's one of the things that drives my work in, in schools, but not just in schools, in young offenders institutes, in prisons, wherever, is that I want people to feel the children of all ages and, 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 and people that they have some power and to, to, to reclaim that power. And I think people who feel power generally don't tend to use it over other people. I think people who actually really feel they're powerless, but they have some uh, imitation power, as I would say, with a job title or something, they're the ones who exert power. Mm. The bunch of keys used to work in pupil referral units and people used to have a big, like the bigger the bunch of keys, the bigger, the, the sort of more power was being manifested. Can I, can I go back to, you, you said that you were, that your family was one of the last fully nomadic travelling families. How do you know that your family was, was the last or one of the last? No, one of, one, one of the last, because, um, in the 1960s, what happens, what happened in the Northeast and, and also all over the country, we had this huge building boom and they took away lots and lots of our traditional stopping places. So the places where we would stop that free travel that we'd had for, you know, 500 years near enough, then we had less and less and less and less places to stop. Some people were living on caravan sites. By that time, so the council had provided some caravan sites. There wasn't enough, but lots of people had to move into housing because they, you know, they they knew those days were over. There were there were some people who still carried on, but you know, more seasonal. So you know, to to my dad was born in a wagon, the old fashioned horse drawn wagon, um, and then I was born in the the more modern caravan. So within a just that one generation. It, it was changing. It was changing really, really quickly. And of course, we still have some nomadic people now, but very, very few that I know of that would be, consider themselves to be fully nomadic. You know, they, they probably wouldn't be traveling at this time of year. And, and, and it's really interesting for me that we now have these people who say, well, you know, um, I'm into van life. We have the tiny home movement in the USA. And we have these young people who say, well, I, I don't want to work nine to five. I want to be a digital nomad and I want to do this. And, you know, it, it, it's there is something about that freedom. And, and I think the technology has allowed those people to be more nomadic, whereas we couldn't be anymore because our stopping places were, were taken. And, you know, I can remember driving around when we lived in a, a sort of a little small holding type house that. The properties that nobody used to want in those days, they're, they're very posh now, but, you know, they would be like out the way a bit next to railway lines or whatever, but there would be room to park our caravans. And we'd be driving around. My dad would be, you know, going to work and we'd be working and stuff. And we'd be driving around in a van or a car or whatever. And it very sad, really. My dad would say, you know, we used to stop there. We used to stop there. We used to stop. It's really one of his things, you know, as we would we're traveling maybe 10 miles from one town to the other, we'd pass maybe... 10 or 11 places where we used to stop but then it was fenced up and then it was taken and and i guess if 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 that was now then people would say hang on a minute we need to take this to court we we must have some kind of rights but back then you know in the 70s and that people didn't understand that they were scared of bureaucracy they they just worked around things like like they'd always done so yeah it's a very it's a very sad thing in many ways because 
we we lost a lot, but what we didn't lose was our culture. We lost some of the culture, the traveling part of it, perhaps. But you know, we have horse fairs and other things to to keep in touch. But we haven't lost what I call the nomadic way, and that's a that's a way of thinking, that's a way of doing, it's a way of surviving and thriving. So you know, and that, and that's that's really interesting to me because then I take that now to companies, to business schools, to school schools and and talk about that you know this this circular way and it's really fascinating to me because you know people will now say oh richard have you heard about you know we're talking about circular fashion and i'm like ah oh, yeah yeah we kind of invented that you know because it was called rag and bone people and we were the first people to monetize recycling actually recycling's always been done forever but we were the first people to monetize it as a business it, Oh, they say, have you heard this thing called donut economics? I say, yeah, we had one called circular economics and it worked really well. I actually wrote this piece called uh, Donuts Eat Circles for Breakfast. Um, and, and, you know, we just need to keep reminding people that we had this and you didn't want it. You wanted to kill it. You know, you you didn't want it. So in the 70s, because I, I feel like that, that you know, the point that you make about about these days it wouldn't happen some things wouldn't happen or people would would go to court or or would would take would go through the bureaucracy to a certain extent do you think that that removal of stopping places in the 70s would have been if this was happening now would have been seen through the lens of diversity equity or inclusion oh yeah 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 most definitely and back then we weren't actually recognized as legal ethnic minorities so we didn't have ethnic minority and racial status that that was only done in case law uh, in the eighties. So um, we 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 wouldn't you know we, we would have that now, but we didn't have it then. Mm, mm. So when you were when you were a child, how many schools did you did you go to? Oh gosh, I, I'll try to count it up once. But you know, you like do a week here and a week there and a couple yeah. of weeks there. Um, probably, I think I probably 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 head, heading up towards like um, twenty uh, or around about that. But 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 I think. For a long time being at them, there were five or six, maybe even seven. So I'd be like, so that's six months, 12 months. And I, I liked, I liked learning, didn't particularly like school, the system of school, but I liked learning. And, and that was, you know, a great place to learn. I liked books. I loved libraries because, you know, libraries were just, just full of books. There was nobody really, apart from the occasional, shh, you know, in the old days, but there was, there was nobody really telling you what to do with those books. Yeah, no one policing it. Yeah, and I think most librarians, and even today, that they, they get a thrill out of seeing people read books. You know, and that's the wonderful thing about libraries. So as a so twenty ish school, however many schools, but quite a few schools. Just that I'm interested in this this dynamic of insider outsider because I've I've worked in schools where we've had. Lots of, mo- I think the term is mobility, isn't it, these days? But I, I mean, I just saw people who were who were migrants coming in, who were asylum seekers coming in, sometimes staying, sometimes moving on. So we were often in the sort of transitionary period for people's lives, which I was interested in. We always, as an institution, managed to make sometimes feel so, so difficult, even though people were already going through so much difficulty, particularly asylum seeking families. And so I'm interested in that insider outsider role because I've I've been in the institution when it feels like we're making people feel like more like outsiders than we need to in this moment. 
And I wonder about that experience of going to many lots of schools. Were some schools good at kind of creating the you're in here now, you're you're part of this? And and yeah, if you could could you talk to that a bit, that kind of insider outsider experience? Yeah, I think I think some some schools just accept kids, don't they? And and and, and some adults, whether they're teachers or whatever, they like kids. I mean, you, you as a child, you can tell whether people like you or not. It's as simple as that. You know, they they they, they really can. And I, and I think some schools are geared for it. They're set up for it. They can be flexible, whereas I think some aren't. And you know, even today we have this thing, don't we, about this attendance, this uniform. There's this, there's this, there's this, and you know, if you if you follow that to the letter and you do all of the right things, then you're a good child. If you don't, you're a bad child. Now, what I've always said about children, and you know, no child that I know of at six, seven, eight year old has any claim on the family budget. They don't work out what money's going to spend on on what and where. They don't have alarm clocks to tell the rest of the family when to get up and so on and so on. And families have issues. Families go through lots of difficult things. You know, I know what it was like moving around. I can't imagine not being able to speak much English and then dealing with bureaucracy as it is now. You can't, you know, as, as you ask anybody who's really literate, very, very good with tech to try and get an appointment with a government organization. You know, oh, I've been on the phone for 20 minutes. I've been, what if you don't speak English very well yet? You know, what if you don't understand the systems? What if there is a, a religious event in your family that they have to attend? It's more important than anything else in the world. And I think we have, in general population, I think, has forgotten how important family is in some ways. Family goes before everything. And a lot of families who come from different places still have that the family unit is 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 well it's the support network it's everything and school is important but it's not as important as everything else and i think sometimes we forget that and we think that our organization or whichever organization is way more important than anything else and it's the thing that people should want to belong to versus wanting to belong to their own family yeah yeah, and and I, you know, and I, and I think you know, having 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 worked with schools, some brilliant schools, and some not so good schools, and been to lots of different ones as a child, but also as an adult, as a parent as well, with with, with my children at school, and you you look at some of the systems, and you you can very easily not fit in that system, you know, and and having worked in professional football, I understand about teams and understand about team loyalty and understand about the badge and but we do have this thing about that it's almost like when you join a school you're signing up to you know a system a badge a heritage a whatever and that's great and i love heritage is very very important but it's just a place where we learn it's so interesting that sort of claiming that a lot of schools i work with I feel that of schools I've worked in as well try to do um and it's a and there's a cultural claiming as well about how families should bring children up or how people should do things around here and uh, and it, it really struck me recently I was talking about Ramadan with a school uh, a primary school 
and 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 it, and it struck me that there are professionals who feel they have a part in the decision making as to whether children fast and and that, that is just entirely not our business <laughs> it is the domain of a family and the domain of that family is the you know is the key as you're saying is the kind of the, the 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 key piece of belonging for that child so it's an interesting it feels like an interesting boundary overstep often the way that some institutions will choose to position themselves as the the ultimate parent versus the actual parents yeah and and you know and I always you know when I started working in schools but even as a, as a child I thought this but more so as an adult you know and particularly secondary school and high school and you look around and you've got these kids who, you know, the year sevens, 11 and, and 12 and stuff and, and older. And, and, you know, I've always reminded myself as a business person, as an entrepreneur, social and otherwise, is that, you know, we, we are there to serve people, you know, as a, as a, as a freelancer, you get paid for what you do and your results and so on and so on. And it always tickled me to think that actually everybody in school Apart from a volunteer, perhaps, but, but every adult in school is getting paid to be there, including me. The kids are not. They're not getting anything out of it. And if they're disengaged from their education, from the learning in that school, they're getting less than nothing. Imagine if, if somebody said to you as an adult, now, here's the thing. You go to this place. It's not very good for you. You just don't want to be there all day. And maybe it's giving you some kind of anxiety as well on top. And you don't get anything out of it. Why would you go? You know, I, I see adults talking about schools that, as, as professionals who say it, the school is toxic and they cannot wait to get out of it. If you're a child in a toxic school, you can't get out of it. You've got no power. An adult, you can walk. Child, you can't. And that's what always concerns me. I've been that child in a school thinking, what am I doing here? What is the point of this? You know, mm. so that is a nice segue into the sort of next bit. You talked a little bit about your work. How did your early experiences or your um, your childhood shape the way that you show up? Because, well, you're a storyteller, you're a you're a business person, but you're also often talking about matters of equality and equity. And I know that you've talked about race and you've 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 performed and, you know, you're an activist in the space. How are those early experiences a part of the work that you do now? How have you used them? I don't, I know what it feels like to be left out for no reason. And as a child, you have a very, very strong sense of justice. I, t I tell a story about one of my great uncles who um, had an issue many, many years ago, was refused service in a shop because of something somebody else had done from the community. And I always ask children this question, and they can be your fours, five, six, sevens, eight, nines, ten. And I say, put your hand up if you've ever got in trouble for something you didn't do. Now I said, look, we all we've all been in trouble for things we have done, but put your hand up if you got in trouble for something you definitely didn't do. And every pretty much every hand will go up. And that sense of justice, of injustice, children and young people is very very strong and i think that burns within you and i don't want any child to be in that position i don't want any child to be left out because of not because of anything they've done 
but because of who they are. And that's the difference. Listen, you know, if, if, if I'm really rude to you and I'm a really obnoxious person and you say to me, Richard, look, thing is, I'm, I'm not going to have that Richard O'Neill on this, this podcast. I, I don't want to, I'm not going to invite him to anywhere. And I certainly don't want him here because he's actually been really obnoxious to me. Fair enough. Right. I would do the same to you. But there are people out there who will look at your ethnicity and they will go, hmm, nah, don't want him because he's a gypsy person. He's a Romani person. Don't even know me. And we talk about inclusion and we talk about exclusion and we talk about, you know, oh, there's nobody excluded from here. Everybody's welcome. And I always say to schools when I do or conferences, when was the last time you had a gypsy person, an artist in your school? Pretty much had every other type of artist. Why not? Oh, well, I don't, that's, mm. and they don't know very often. They just don't know. They cannot tell you. What do you think the reason is that they haven't? Gosh, that is that is a really interesting question. Um, is it because they think it will cause an issue with parents because of the every time, you know, gypsy is a very, very divisive issue? You, you see something happening with gypsy people and then you see the comments on social media. Um, is it because they really just don't know how to deal with it, you know, what would happen. I'll give you a very, very good for instance. I was up in uh, the north of England, a certain part of the north of England, and I'd done quite a few schools as almost like a little mini tour, probably about 10 years ago. And as part of this, we were having a head teachers meeting afterwards, and some different head teachers were coming. And I just happened to have followed around a group of Zulu dancers. They were called the Zulu Warriors. And they would go to schools and they would dance. They were amazing, apparently. And, and, and they would sell jewelry beads and stuff like that as well. And they were kind of like, I was probably about a week behind every one of those schools. And this head teacher said to me, a head teacher had been in this school. Oh, she said, You must get Richard in your school. It's been amazing, the storytelling and the kids and so on and so on. And this head teacher said to me, She said, yeah, Richard, I'd love to have you in my school but we don't have any travellers. And I think that's the issue. You would only invite somebody like me if you had travellers in the school. So so, so they immediately put you in that box. My storytelling is for everybody. My books are for everybody. And I said to her, and I, I, I had to say it because it was burning inside me. I said, how many Zulus do you have in your school? She said, don't know what you mean. She, I said, well, you had the Zulu dancers, the warriors, didn't you, about a week ago? Oh, yeah, they were brilliant. So how many Zulus do you have in your school? She said, well, none. There's several things going on there. The conflation of, well, anyone black would, would really feel like their Zulu warrior was, a, was somehow a role model because, you know, <laughs> even though literally nothing to do with my lived experience and the idea that our, these, that our identities have to be used only for role modeling for people who hold those identities versus I, 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 I want to make sure that everybody who who is in a school that is predominantly white British with very little visible diversity at least is able to live in the world 
to meet people who they will never meet, to experience ideas that they won't come into contact with. So it's a very retrograde way of thinking about about this. And that that's one scenario that the idea that, well, we don't have any we don't have any Romani families in the school, so we wouldn't we wouldn't need your services if you like. What you also mentioned that people have a nervousness around gypsies or the word gypsy or is it a nervousness based on people don't really know what Romani gypsy describes or what traveller means or what what is it? I think it's because they think they know what it means. And they think that that their only experience is negative. So they they read the papers, they watch the TV programmes and they've never had a positive experience, even though they might have unknowingly had interactions with gypsy and traveller people for years and years and years and might even have some heritage. You know, we've been here 500 years, so there is a lot of intermarriage over the years, particularly down in London, um, in, in the east of London and lots of other places where there are large populations. But, you know, it's like any community, isn't it? There is certain groups that get the newspaper headlines. You know, if you, if you think of London, there are certain groups of people. There's probably loads and loads of other crimes going on, particularly white-collar crimes and people, you know. But, but it's more it's more scary and it's makes better news if it's real people out on the street doing these doing these things but i think then you have other things to balance it up so if you think about tv programs you think about comedy you think about all these things there isn't anyone from the gypsy or traveling communities that is well known and that's not because we aren't funny it's not because we aren't good actors not because we aren't good singers or it's just that it's very, very hard to break through. And I think a lot of people think, well, do you know what? Do I carry on with my life and have a, a reasonably good life with my family? Or do I put myself on that pedestal, that, that parapet um, up there and take that amount? Why, would I, why do I need to spend 20, 30 years trying to break through um, just to get a whole load of abuse, just to get a whole load? And, and I, I totally understand it. You know, there are, there are quite a few famous people who are Gypsy or Roma or Traveller who will not talk about their identity, will not come out, so to speak. And I don't blame them because why why would they? Why would they, you know, put themselves up for that level of abuse? Why is there that level of abuse? I think because every community, I think, over time has every, com- every country, uh, you know, and we saw this with Hitler, and I mentioned Hitler and I mentioned Nazi Germany because just four weeks ago, um, I was at a, a new um, Roma memorial um, ceremony in, in Berlin. And that, you know, there are people with lived experience. There are old people who still have the knowledge of their parents taken away. Um, so we, we always seem to need somebody to hate, some group to hate. And it's difficult, actually, for people to get their head around the fact that if they hate gypsy people, but actually some of us are thriving. So that's really, really difficult. They would like us to be um, kept at the bottom, I think. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it always uh, confuses, fascinates, uh, upsets, um, depresses, all those words, me. But I just carry on and do my own thing. Um, 
and and that's all I can do. You know, if you don't want to invite me to your school, if you don't want to invite me to your conference, if you don't want to do that based on my ethnicity, then that's on you. Um, I'm not going to spend my life trying to get through your door. It it really kind of touches me in a way that I can't describe because I feel like I spend a lot of time in this field saying there is no hierarchy. There's no hierarchy of identity. There's no hierarchy, or at least there shouldn't be. And there so is. And I'm and I'm and I'm so I'm so fascinated by this particular, as you say, this kind of need to keep the group at the bottom is is almost allowing schools not I mean schools aren't the only institutions but they're the institution I'm interested in to to obscure a group's identity or existence within the community because we simply just don't know anything and we don't have any information it's a very clever mechanism of ignorance allows us to just completely ignore a group and your work are you kind of consciously bringing surfacing a consciousness about Romani culture is that what you see yourself doing or do you see yourself as somebody who who is a gypsy Romani who who has that cultural identity but works in different ways who just happens to hold that identity it's really interesting isn't it because you know if if we look at it in plain and simple terms then some people will ask you to be part of something because of of your ethnicity you know, because you are this 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 ethnicity and it's exotic or interesting. But you know, and then and then sometimes you might need to do that. So very often I'll be described as a Romani writer, and that might that might serve the purpose of of that particular thing. But actually, in reality, am I a very good storyteller? Am I a reasonably good writer who just happens to be Romani? Or am I a Romani writer or a Romani storyteller? That's that's a conundrum, and I and I and I'm I'm, I'm I don't really get hung up on that. It's it's not. But you know, I, I do want to. I think every author, every storyteller, every writer wants to share their ideas. They want to show people their stories. Mine just happened to be a lot driven by my upbringing driven by my you know my latest children's book um this was slightly older children eight to twelve is inspired by the first romani footballer professional footballer called rav Howell. so you know that's part of my culture that's part of my inspiration that's why i do it but i also write characters you know i write plays about characters who aren't romani so but i think that is you know where you come from and who you are is what makes you and if if it came down to if somebody said you know today well you know i'll give you a million pounds to do this project but we can't mention you're a romani person and we've got to erase all of that or 10 million and we've got to erase it and i wouldn't do it because i am what i am and i'm proud of where i come from and i'm you know i was just thinking about my mum and dad this morning and you know, living in living in a caravan and my dad living in a wagon with ice everywhere and colder than this. I mean, this is not winter, proper winters. Um, and they survived and they thrived. And, you know, and I, that's, that, that to me is just the most wonderful heritage. But no, I don't I don't understand, you know, why if 
if if one black person or three black people or four Pakistani people do something to me, I can understand why people would be angry at them, but not at a whole community. And and I think that's what happens. You get this collective. And, I, and, I, and I'll give you a true story. And I, I don't I don't think I've ever told I haven't told many people this. It was very very upsetting at the time, and I had to make a decision about it. And I made a decision as a professional storyteller about it rather than, I guess, uh, as a person. So I get a booking at a school in the northwest of England, probably about 12 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. And it's great. And what usually happens with school bookings is we book it in the diary and then forget about it for a couple of weeks before then we go through the timetable or whatever people need. And I get a phone call from this woman, and she's uh, the teacher who's booked me. She's so rich, she's up. Um, don't know quite how to say this. I thought it was going to say, well, we've cancelled it, you know, because there's a problem with the school or something. Oh, that's not a problem. We can reschedule. She said, I don't really know how to say this. Um, I said, well, say it. She says, um, she said, um, she said, well, there's, there's about 12 people, 12 parents who don't want their children to have any interaction with you on, on when you come in. Now she says, I understand if you don't want to come in, then um that's not a problem. So why why is this? I've never had this before. She said, Well, there were some travellers came into the village and they've caused a bit of problem, they've caused a bit of a mess and, and a few issues. And these parents said they don't want their children to have any interaction with you. And that got me right there. I thought. Oh my goodness me. And really, really upset me. Really upset me. And I thought oh, the easiest thing to do would be to cancel it. But there's only 12. The others are obviously okay. So I go and do the school visit. And it was brilliant. In the end, there was only about seven families who kept, kept the children out. But then I asked a lot of my friends who were artists from all different ethnic minority groups who've been doing this for 20 years before me, perhaps 10 years prior to me. I said, listen, have you ever had that? And not one of them said they'd ever had that. And that's the best way I can explain it. Hasn't happened since. Hasn't happened since. It is actually unthinkable. That it would that a school leader would phone up and say, Angie, I don't know how to say this. A few parents are not comfortable with you being a black woman and talking to talking to the kids because it is enshrined in everything that they do. But but what what really gets me about that story is that you are the person that then has to make the decision rather than the school saying, that's absolutely fine. Rich is coming into school, so you can you're free to keep your kids at home. But you know the culture of this school is the values of our school are we're we're really about everybody in our community. And so it's when it's when those things get passed on to the person with the identity, as though you continue to be the problem, so you can continue to opt in or at, or opt out, is the dynamic I find so pernicious. And it's interesting that it's somehow thought that you and you with your identity can cope with it better than somebody who that would never happen to. So, you know, it wouldn't, it, 
that there are other protected characteristics that you know people would be so terrified that they would end up in the paper that they wouldn't dream of having that conversation. God, that's hot. It's awful. And and that that kind of that permeates, doesn't it? So for for for, for children who are also Romani. Sorry, I realise I've been mispronouncing Romani. No, no, it's fine, it's fine. And and then you know, and then that that again goes right back to where we started from before, where that makes me wonder how many schools have decided not, even on recommendation, not to have me or somebody like me in, because it would upset some of their families. And then we and then we're right down the rabbit hole, then aren't we? You know, where, where does that stop? Who decides? Well, with the with the with the way that I um, I've been thinking about how we how we work with protected characteristics and identities and I think lots of people say you know will say oh in our school we're really really worried about gender at the moment and staff don't have the language to talk about gender and they're really they're really anxious about getting it wrong and for so, for so much of the work I do it's actually about surfacing well well what are the fears and and what do we know and do we have a literacy you're a storyteller like me interested in narratives like if we don't have a literacy to talk about people's identity and of course we're going to not talk about it so of course we're never going to know and it's almost a commitment to the literacy and then beyond the literacy what what do we know culturally what's our cultural competence what do we know about the culture of people that we are talking about what do I know about my Afro-Caribbean boys in central London? What do I choose to engage in about their lives? And again, the, the sort of proximity to that means that we can start to unpack some of the really unhelpful where there happens to be some travellers in the village versus what do we know about the culture of Romani people? What do we, I mean, it just seems a, a no, it seems a no-brainer, but it's interesting that it, it stays mired in. We don't know and we're not going to find out. So, so who does book you in typically? What, and what are they when schools get you in or you, you said you're going off to a library this afternoon? What's the motivation behind wanting you to be there? It depends, really. Sometimes I'll do events where we are talking about Romani uh, books. It could be um, Gypsy Roma Traveller History Month in June. It could be something around that, doing something with universities during that month. The rest of the time, it now is just, you know, we want a really good storyteller. We want an author, um, you know, and the feedback that I get from my work now, you know, speak, speaks for itself. And then people recommend you. And then even, you know, I've been doing this for such a, a while now that teachers will move school and they'll take you with them, um, which is which is just lovely. And then the, the ethnicity is just a thing. It's just part of the whole thing. So it's not. The, the big thing where I think a lot of, quite a while ago, I think for a lot of people, it was the biggest thing. And now and now it isn't the biggest thing. It's just part of the thing, which is which is nice. And that's what I said. It's that it's that, you know, it depends whether and if it is uh, an event where it is to talk about Romani culture and it will be um, with this new children's book. So it will you know, that will be that will play a big part in it because um, that's the heritage. and you know, being a, and some of it is, I experienced it, even though it's a long time ago in this book, I I was a boy who was mad on football, wanted to play it and every, and, and, and was told, you know, that it wasn't a, a sport for our culture. It wasn't a sport for our community. And it was, 
by my family, you know, by my extended family. But my dad, God love him, he would just stand there for hours while I kicked the ball at him. He had no interest in football whatsoever, uh, but he was just great. Um, but it wasn't seen as one of our sports, you know. And I think if you look at lots of other communities who are told by their family, you know, I think I think it's it, and I talk about this, and we have to have these conversations where, you know. You, you can have a double challenge. You can, from a, a marginalized group or whatever we want to describe it, you want to do something that nobody's done before. And that's a challenge now. But if there's resistance from inside your family as well, you've got a double challenge. And, and lots of families have had that. You know, you get kids from all different groups, um, you know, typically old, older-fashioned working-class families who said, I want to go to university. Don't be so daft. So now you've got the challenge of being the only one to try and get into uni. Then you've got your family who are not really supporting you because they don't understand it. And, and I and I think that's what that's the theme I wanted. One of the themes I wanted to do in the book is to say, look, you know, it's there's lots and lots of us who have double trouble, you know, and 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 you'll find that you know, and again, you know, just women who have had to fight against, you know. Um, patriarchy to get to a particular position, and then they're having to fight with their family because, like, actually, oh, you know, the women don't do that. You know, what will other people think if you become, you know, doing that like a man's job or what? You know, it's so there's a there's a double, um, and I wanted to address that in the book. And 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 fortunately, Scholastic, the publisher, you know, they they, they allowed me to actually tell um, a quite a gritty story. Really, I didn't want to. And again, I think we shouldn't flower it up for kids by saying, well, you know, look, if you are from a different background, whatever that is, if you're a marginalized group, you are going to find it harder, my friend. It's as simple as that. Let's not flower it up. You're going to have to work a little bit harder. You're going to have to think a bit smarter. That's it. You know, it's not a meritocracy. It's not equal playing field, you know, using the analogy of the, the book. But it's not. You're gonna have to graft, and you're gonna have to get a little bit lucky. And you, but how do you work? The lucky you might get, and you're gonna have to, you know, need a little bit of hand up from some people. And there are people who will help you. Don't get hung up on all the negatives. You know, it's that kind of stuff. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Angie. It's been so nice to talk to you, Richard. I feel like I could talk to you for many, many hours. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Being Luminary podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please do leave us a review. Each month, I will be picking one of our reviewers to get a free laser coaching session as a thank you. And remember, if you know a luminary or an everyday thought leader who would benefit from listening to this podcast or who would love to be featured on the cast, then please do share it with them. This episode was presented by me, Angie Brown. Original music is by Martin Ostwick. The series is edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.